welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. All right, then. Live from our studio above a pool table in a bar, this is hell manufacturing descent since 1996. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, Monday through Wednesday at thisishell.com, and our podcast shortly after at the same place. Again, thisishell.com. Then the world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR, Northwestern University Radio, at 89.3 FM in the Chicago area. This Is Hell also airs abbreviated versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow, in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on the Chicago Southside's Lumpen Radio, and thrice weekly Yes, I said thrice on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. As we have been on air since 1996, as I just mentioned, it would likely be very difficult for us to find any issue where we have been thoroughly and completely consistent. Sure, 20 years ago, the late great historian and author of The People's History of the United States, Howard Zinn, which you would figure would be trending on all sorts of social media platforms over the past few years, considering the manufactured fear-mongering misleadingly surrounding critical race theory. Sure, Howard Zinn said of This Is Hell that we are unabashedly partisan on matters of peace and justice, but that's kind of spraying to all fields, a pretty general statement that could mean well, just about anything you want it to. But within that peace and justice spectrum, one area where we've been pretty steady and unvarying is prioritizing humanity, people's actual lives, over money, above profits. After all, we first went on air as the North American Free Trade Act and the Telecommunications Act of 1996, and the Clinton's crime omnibus bill were all institutionalizing the neoliberal dream of what was then called the Democratic Leadership Council, the New Democrats, who were, who were essentially Reagan Republicans. You know, the kinds of Democrats that ushered in the WTO and concepts like intellectual property rights and trade secrets that undermined worldwide distribution of, well, let's say affordable COVID-19 vaccines, just as it had done with AIDS vaccines. Returning to the show today will be journalist Alexander Zychik, author of the new book, Owning the Sun, a people's history of monopoly medicine. From aspirin to COVID-19, Alexander was on our show in April of 2021 to discuss his New Republic article, How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines Through His Hallowed Foundation, the world's de facto public health czar has been a stalwart defender of monopoly medicine. That conversation was selected by our listeners as one of their favorites of 2021, so we replayed that over the holidays when we were celebrating last year. That interview is now available for free at thisishell.com when you search on Alexander's last name, Zychik. Alexander is also the author of the 2016 book, The Gilded Age, A Wild Ride Through Trump's America, and 2010's Common Nonsense. You can find out more about Alexander at Zychik.com. That's Z-A-I-T-C-H-I-K.com. 
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vopers. Sebastian, how the hell have you been? Man, I'm pretty good. Pretty good, for the most part. Pretty good. That's about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, over the weekend, we, we, we found a cockroach in my bathtub. Oh, dude. As I was... As I was um, as I turned on the faucet, you know, like I wear pretty thick glasses. I'm not quite as blind as you are, but pretty. pretty maybe pretty maybe without glasses might be yeah. pretty close. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. And so it's just like I turn the water on, and like there's this um, black, you know, like thing starting <laughs> to move. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's none of like neither me nor my wife have black hair. So I'm like, what? What? This, this can't be. <laughs> And also, it looks like it's moving by itself, and so I get out. And of your th- hair rarely moves by itself. Yeah, yeah, usually not. And um, uh, and so I step out of the tub, put on glasses, take a look, and it's like, oh, yep, nope, that's a roach. Um, the second one. So you are a renter, I assume. Yes, yes, we we rent, we rent. Um, uh, we had roaches so bad in one of the apartments that we rented that you know when you you're looking at your coffee ma- meter or coffee maker, and there's that meter telling you how much water is in the coffee maker. Mm-hmm. We saw roaches, roaches, plural, crawling <laughs> up and down that meter. We have had such horrible uh, roach situations in our life. That's why every time, whenever we've moved, and thank, thankfully we haven't moved lately, uh, you, we have to put boric acid in every box that we pack and to make sure that there's no roaches going from one place to the other. And now that we have a hoarder living on our first floor and walking by her apartment this morning... I didn't need coffee to wake me up. The stench that's coming out of there right now is deplorable. So, yeah, I hate to one up your roach situation. Yeah, but. I mean, I mean, I, I have, I have to say, like, like this was the second. Like, I've, I've lived there for a year. This was the first roach this year. Last year, we've seen one. So, it's also like overall the third roach I've seen in my life in the well in my life period. Like, I've only seen roaches in the United States. Imagine how bad the roaches must have been in the apartments I lived in before when I oh, could yeah. see them. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. and That's, I could see a lot mm-hmm. of them. So this is the first time I've done the show in its entirety since March 3rd due to a condition I have that led to my hospitalization, a condition from which I still have yet to fully recover, and I almost could not do today's show. One of the many effects of my illness that landed me in the hospital for over two weeks laid me up in bed for nearly an entire month was rapid, drastic weight loss. When I came home from the hospital, I weighed uh, 168 pounds. Within a week, I was down to 147 pounds, a 21-pound loss in just seven days. I was told it was water weight from constant IVs and liquid diet that I was administered while hospitalized. I I knew putting that weight back on would be difficult, and it took about a month to put on only about 10 pounds. Then suddenly, 10 days later, I'd started putting on two, three, even four pounds daily. Last week, I put on over seven pounds overnight. So this weekend, the in-home nurse the hospital assigned to me due to the severity of my illness, the nurse came over and said, gaining weight like that, that quickly is not only dangerous, but generally if you gain over four pounds overnight, let alone over seven, you should not only make an appointment with your family doctor, but also admit yourself to the emergency room immediately. Luckily, my weight has dropped a little bit since and stabilized over the past few days, so I'm glad I'd already scheduled to take the rest of this week off and start on our regular daily schedule next week instead of this week. And stay tuned in throughout this week's shows to get updates on what the hell is happening with my freaking health. 
But more important than whatever the hell is wrong with me, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell? I did not see one posted before I left for the show. Uh, yeah, that's because I just... Well, actually, no. I wrote it. I did not post it yet because I posted that on, on Facebook. I just posted that we uh, that we are live now. Um, <laughs> I will post the question from hell on Facebook Which uh, is? while the show... While the interview runs. Uh, and uh, this week's question from hell is, what are you replacing white people with? What are you replacing <laughs> white people with? What are you replacing white people with? That's a good one, my I, friend. I am replacing myself with... Uh, kebab skewer like with a dinner kebab skewer if you've ever seen a raw dinner kebab skewer they are pretty rotund um i mean i'm not quite that rotund but like still uh so i i can't identify myself with that and i, I guess uh, eating a kebab skewer might be healthier than eating me but who knows i'm replacing white people with uh, questions from hell that end in a preposition <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins it's so difficult to not end Every sentence with a preposition uh, wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The this is hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering and face mask, the coffee mug, the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, the trucker's cap, the winter hat. You can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com when you click on support where you can contribute to completely listener supported. This is hell. Thanks to Earl P. of Montclair, New Jersey for picking up a this is hell face mask when he went to thisishell.com and clicked on support. Thanks to Richard A. of Chicago, who got a winner-lined beanie, a black T-shirt, and a tote bag. Andrew C. of New York City, thanks for going to thisishell.com and clicking on support and requesting an enamel This Is Hell camping mug. And finally, thanks to Daniel M. of Jackson, Mississippi, for choosing a tote bag. Also, sorry, I forgot, uh, Paul H. of Manchester in the U.K. for picking up a This Is Hell trucking industry professional cap a trucking hat. Thanks, Earl, Richard, Daniel, Andrew, and Paul. We truly appreciate your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, Sebastian will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Alexandra on intellectual property rights and how they are trying to change medicine forever. Again, the question from hell is, what are you replacing white people with? What are you replacing white people with? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Sebastian, I believe you have this week's hangover cure. Indeed, I do. Uh, this week's hangover cure is toad poisoning. No toads were poisoned, supposedly, during the course of this week's hangover cure. According to an article in The Independent, Russian oil boss dies from toad poisoning. <laughs> a former top manager of the Russian energy uh, corporation Lukoil has died from suspected toad poisoning. Reports suspected. 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 Yeah, the toad is still at large. Yes, we have a lot of legal loopholes and mm. a lot of attorneys. We mm. have to make sure we say suspected. <laughs> Following a session with a local shaman in... Mm, uh, Mutis... Jesus. Mutishchi? Yeah, I, I think that's it, Mutishchi. Okay. Uh, city northeast of Russia's capital, Moscow. Alexander Subotin, a Lukoil board member, allegedly... Allegedly, died in the basement after an anti-hangover session with the healer. I mean, well, I guess you have to be Russian if your hangover is bad enough that you need help from a shaman. Yes, yes. Uh, Subotin visited the shaman Magua and his wife. I love I love people who have mononyms. 
uh, at their home, the Telegram channel MASH claims to treat a hangover using toad venom. That makes this week's hangover cure toad poisoning, which is being poisoned by a toad, not the poisoning off a toad. <laughs> Many of you contacted us while I've been out for the last two and a half months and sent your get well wishes. Rob H. emailed Chuck at this is hell.com and wrote, Hey man, I hope your recovery is going well. I'm hoping you take as long as you need to recover before you return because 20 plus years of what you did is insane. You really should have an extra couple of weeks to get some pain-free time off with your partner. The team you have behind you is great. Alexander, as always. Alexander, Jerry, as always, your producer. And I've really I've really liked what he's done, and I really liked what I've heard from Sebastian Whooper so far about what he's starting to do as well. Anyway, I'm looking forward to your healthy return to This Is Hell. Rob, yes, it is insane that I've been doing this for over 20 years, although I'm trying to refrain from using the... I word. You are also correct that I should take a couple extra weeks off to be with my partner, but as of now, we, myself and my partner, we can't find a, a couple days, let alone weeks, and to take off. And we're having a lot of difficulty deciding where to go and relax once I am completely recovered. So, Rob or anyone, if you have any ideas, our only requirement is that it has some sort of massaging jet pool that fits two people who want to get really drunk while sitting in a massaging jet pool. And Rob, writing. Again, the work by everyone to keep the show running while I've been out has been amazing. Daniel M. also wrote to us at chuckatthisishell.com, and I think that's the Daniel M. from Jackson, Mississippi, who I mentioned earlier, who showed his support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Daniel writes, Chuck, glad to hear that you're still alive. <laughs> Me too. Didn't know what happened there for a minute, though maybe they, I thought maybe they had shut y'all down. I'm thankful that is not the case, as your show is helping me keep my sanity. Speedy recovery, if I can do anything from Mississippi, please let me know. All the best from Mississippi, Daniel. First, Rob uses the I word, and Daniel says we're keeping his sanity. Daniel, I am not sure what the they is that would shut us down, but they're being pretty slow about it. Being shut down by some sort of authority figure would be great for our popularity and legitimacy. So whoever they is, if they could get to work trying to shut us down and give us some credibility, we'd truly be grateful. Good Lord, what do we have to do to get some white supremacist group to get us kicked off the air at Northwestern University or, or in Moscow, Idaho? I mean, that town, Moscow, Idaho, has gone, well, I don't want to use the I word, but they've gone that for fascism. We also heard from Vess F. for a little background. The last show I did was on March 3rd. Then on April 11th, I introduced that day's show to give everybody a health update because so many people were writing. Vess writes shortly after listening to that April 11th health update, saying, Chuck, the sound of your voice, although different sounding than 45 days ago, was amazing to hear. I received a notification of a new episode posted when I briefly glanced at the title while driving. I saw it was a staff pick and assumed Alex Jerry was... Attempting to keep us satiated, then you spoke. A wave of relief washed over me. I had gotten the Patreon email from Alex and knew you were in the hospital. Then I heard nothing else until my drive home from work. The amazing thing about having a 25-year catalog of This Is Hell shows and interviews is being able to recover from your own personal month-long hell while also doing what you have repeatedly said so eloquently, bring unreported, underreported truths that would never ever be covered in 99.9% of anything remotely approaching mainstream media to the attention of our listeners, of your listeners. Those listeners uh, research the uh, subjects, uh, spread the word, and hopefully 
set out to change the effed up world that the state of our collective society that we live in. I don't want to draw attention away from your ordeal, which sounds horrific, by connecting it to my own recent bout with illness, American healthcare, and immortality, but I lost someone very close and beloved a few weeks ago. I live about 250 miles away from where she lived and still had to attend my office a few days a week. But I drove that 500-mile round trip countless times while she was in the ICU in the hospital and eventually under hospice care in her home. There were two times that I drove the six hours just to spend an hour with her, and every single one of those drives was spent listening to at least one episode of This Is Hell, if not multiple shows. The subjects you approach and the people being interviewed are never rosy. The system is rotten to the point that further rot is hard to imagine. But what you are doing and the things you are spotlighting are and are reaching the, the right crowd. Despite the topics, just knowing that a person like you that adamantly rejects sponsorship or even friendships with those you interview just to remain as honest and uncompromised as possible is enough to get me through the death of someone I loved more than words can convey. I'm glad you're on the path to healing. Don't rush it. There's plenty of past episodes. Thank you for what you do, Vess. Thank you, Vess. I really don't know what to say, but other than thank you, uh, anyone who would travel that far repeatedly to support another human being, that's pretty amazing. And thank you, Vess. Coming up, the dangerous pharmaceutical industry monopoly and how it got that way. We will have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you replacing white people with? And someone dropped by the bar downstairs and dropped off a book, and inside there was a letter. Yeah, a piece of paper with handwritten words on it that blew my mind almost as much as Vess's email did. And I'll be sharing that later. Uh, And that letter following our talk with Alexander. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus... This is how, since the pandemic made landfall here in the States back in January of 2020, and we all went to varying degrees of lockdowns and quarantines, we have been told over and over again, especially by the corporate mainstream media, that we're all in this together. Here on This Is Hell, we've had guest after guest telling us that togetherness is illusory at best, ungrounded in reality. But why? Why could we not all join together in a fight against a virus that has killed millions across the globe? Here to help us have a better understanding of why we were not and are not, why we were never and are not all in this together now, we are very happy to have returning to This Is Hell journalist Alexander Zajic, author of Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19. Alexander, thank you so much for coming on a little bit late. I'm sorry we went a little bit over, and thank you so much for returning to our show. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad you're back. Uh, You know, the conversation we had last time was really fantastic. And again, our listeners chose it as one of their favorites of 2021, and we replayed that here on the show. And people can hear that interview about your new Republic article called How Bill Gates Impeded Global uh, Access to COVID Vaccines. And I have, you know, 55 questions or something written for you. But I, <laughs> but I just want to ask you something about that Bill Gates story real quick. I have had a lot. I saw a lot of responses to that interview on social media as well as in emails. But lately I've been seeing more and more about Bill Gates when it comes to social media. And a lot of people have said oh, they make this comparison to what he is doing with his money compared to what Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos is doing with their money. And they all say, well, at least Bill Gates 
has done a lot of work in stamping out malaria. But then when I point out that he's done a lot of work also in impeding intellectual property rights waivers with things like the COVID-19 vaccine, they just say, well, at least he has addressed malaria. So how do you feel about the way in which he has addressed, you know, the way in which he has used his foundation money? Do you, would you call that greenwashing? Uh, what do you think about this concept that, yes, sure, he has impeded intellectual property rights, but at the same time, he has put his money towards supposedly, allegedly good use in the fight against malaria? I think there's a few things you can keep in mind at the same time and sort of draw your own conclusions. But the big ones are this. Since he has kind of reinvented himself as Mr. Global Public Health and become arguably the most influential single person in global health, public health policy and the policies of many countries around the world, especially poor ones, his wealth has grown. His reputation has been very effectively laundered from the antitrust suits against Microsoft when he was a global villain. Uh, which tracks perfectly to his second career in public health. And within that career, I think it's possible to keep two things lined against each other at the same time. One is yes, there are some absolute goods that have been achieved with his money, especially with regard to malaria. At the same time, we have to be able to think about the systemic role that he plays in the overall system that is a failed system and an unjust system. Um, and it, that's not true just of Bill Gates. It's true of any number of philanthropy generally. Um, and that's, that's what's starting to happen now with the critique against mega philanthropy. People are starting to realize that we are sometimes hoodwinked by these enormous amounts of uh, media coverage telling us to be grateful for these absolute goods and then just ignore uh, the system that's being propped up by these same people. Under neoliberalism, one repeated cliche we hear over and over again is the need to have, quote unquote, skin in the game, a phrase used by Republicans and Democrats alike, including Democrats like Hillary Clinton. How much do for-profit pharmaceutical companies have skin in the game when it comes to specifically technological innovation? An enormous amount. I mean, it's the most profitable industry uh, in terms of just profit margins in, you know, certainly the U.S. economy uh, and historically probably as well um, over the course of <laughs> human history, uh, you know, their total uh, profits in the, the first years of the 21st century uh, superseded the total amount of gold that had ever been mined in uh, <laughs> thousands of years which is a remarkable statistic. And that wealth only grew during the pandemic. I mean, I don't have an exact count in front of me, but a good number of billionaires were minted during the pandemic when billions of people uh, had no realistic uh, timetable for access to not just vaccines, but also um, treatments and uh, you know, testing technologies and, and the rest of it. And uh, that, it was a result of intellectual property hoarding and uh, protecting. And the governments that work with these companies made sure that it stayed that way. And now you're starting to see a little bit of a rift. Um, just the other day at the COVID-19 summit, um, Joe Biden announced that 11 patents uh, controlled by the NIH would be 
submitted to the medicines patent pool under the UN through the WHO COVID technology access pool, which had been completely ignored by the Biden administration and the Trump administration until two days ago. Um, and that's not a complete rejection of uh, the private sector's claim to controlling all the IP related to their vaccines, but it's a step and it does provide uh, a bit of light finally between the state that funded so much of this research and the companies that have until now claimed proprietary control, very tight proprietary control over all of it. So until now, how different has the Biden administration policy towards COVID-19 vaccines been from the Trump administrations? Well, they came in, uh, you know, talking a pretty big game. They made it sound as if they were, were going to finally get tough with the drug companies, not just with COVID uh, vaccines, but just across the board. Their, you know, HHS guy, uh, Xavier Becerra, um, had a very good record in California, and there were all these antitrust figures associated with the administration. People thought that would balance out all the, the farm it up lobbyists also in the administration. Um, so far, it's still unclear uh, what's going on behind the scenes, but there hasn't been action to really match the rhetoric that that they came into office with the the recent announcement was probably the most uh meaningful uh action yet uh until then it's it's it was pretty much just a lot of rhetoric they said they would back the the waiver at the world trade organization and then basically just let it stall out didn't put any political capital or energy into that fight at all um so it, better late than never, I guess, but it's it's very much a partial um, and symbolic action what the what the administration did the other day, and, and the real test will come when they muscle up the industry to get them to not just uh, work with countries, but you know hand over more of the uh, IP that's necessary to actually make stuff. Because you know a patent here and a patent there is is not enough. You have to have know-how, you have to have the complementary IP, and there's a lot that goes into it. So it's not clear whether this is another symbolic act, but there are encouraging developments outside of the governments that are aligned with the most powerful uh, pharmaceutical companies. At the WHO, there are signs that they're starting to reclaim their older role during the Cold War of actively assisting the global South to become uh, self-sufficient. And they have a mRNA research center in South Africa that they're trying to, um, where they're basically funding the reverse engineering of, of mRNA technology without Moderna's help, uh, without Western government's help. And they have a, um, a vaccine research center in South Korea that's attempting to sort of get ahead of the next pandemic where they won't be reliant on either Gatesian style philanthropy or um, the assistance of, of powerful Western governments, but will have a sort of um, knowledge base and active research center ready to go staffed by um, a, a global cast of uh, technicians and scientists who are who are already thinking in terms of uh, coming up with technology free of IP. When we interviewed you on the show back in April of 2021, you had mentioned how the Biden administration at that point in time had just announced that they were going to waive the patents on a lot of the COVID-19 vaccines. And that somehow that that from that press conference, a lot of people took from that that, you know, suddenly we are going to have, uh, you know, free or not free, but we're going to have far more accessible COVID-19 vaccines, not just here in the United States, but globally. How do you why do you think that that promise done in April 2021 
is different from the more recent promise in the last few weeks of the Biden administration? Well, the WTO situation was always going to be tough because the WTO is, is a consensus body and the Europeans were not on board with the waiver. And the waiver itself was just destined to be endlessly negotiated in the language back and forth. There was, there was never much of a chance of anything coming of that. But the unilateral action of just putting the IP, putting the patents into these pools, which is what was announced the other day at the uh, COVID-19 summit, is something that they could have done at any time. Um, it's just, it's like an executive order. You just put it out there. You are the federal government, you control uh, these patents and there's, you can do what you want with them. And that's been true for, from day one, um, that it took this long is, is disheartening, but it's a good sign. And hopefully that uh, momentum will continue. Although of course it conversed by change in administration and uh, depending on who's in power, when the next pandemic erupts, uh, we'll either see more of that kind of pooling or uh, a complete end to it. You mentioned alchemy of all weird things to mention in your book, and you talk about how, uh, you know, with the history the pharmaceutical industry has that you can trace back to a time of alchemy. You write that the industry's Merlins today aren't its scientists and technicians, but its patent lawyers and lobbyists. What is the impact, if any, in your opinion, on our faith in science when under capitalism, science is an industry guided by lawyers and lobbyists? not scientists and technicians, to trust science? Do we need to decouple science from the market? That's a good question. Um, there are no shortage, there is no shortage of, you know, great scientists doing important research. And, you know, the breakthroughs that are being made, uh, you know, they're, they're, we haven't seen a, a, a drying up of progress. But what's interesting is just where that progress is taking place. And, uh, most of it, the important breakthroughs, the basis for most new drugs with genuine therapeutic advance value is taking place in um, the public sector with public funds, university research centers, government labs. Um, and what's happening is the face of those breakthroughs in the public mind, although hopefully that is starting to slip, is an industry that in fact, its role is to basically buy these breakthroughs and buy the controlling rights to them and then claim them as their own and proceed to uh, cause maximum pain with by you know putting monopoly prices on them and having zero countervailing power to, to control those prices, whatever the market will bear. And you know unfortunately, as, as you know, um, maybe from your recent experience in the hospital, uh, it's an inflexible <laughs> market and people will uh, pay what they have to pay for the drugs that they need. Um, and that power is, is, is quite a, um, a special power and responsibility and to abuse it the way that they're abusing it is perhaps not surprising, but what is surprising and shocking even is the fact that our government lets them get away with it when it has a constitutional uh, obligation. Uh, according to the basis of the IP system itself, of the patent system, to um, serve the public. It's, 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 it's in the, the text to serve progress of science and the useful arts, not to maximize um, revenue, uh, shareholder value, uh, and not to mint billionaires. That's, that's not in the Constitution. So what we need to do is sort of manhandle the industry as 
befits uh, its role in producing the important uh, breakthroughs, which is uh, a junior role. What they do is they take it up at the end and they pay for these trials. We don't know how much because they're not obligated to uh, report how expensive those trials are. They, they claim that they're so expensive they have to charge uh, monopoly blood prices, but we don't know. Um, so a good start would be finding out exactly how much uh, those, those trials are. But for the most part, it looks like they're spending all of their profits uh, on marketing, on share buybacks, executive bonuses, and various forms of compensation. It's just a racket. Um, so the science is there. I think people know, people haven't lost faith in science, but they should, but they do have a crisis of faith in the idea of representative um, government. I mean, if we can't get action on drug prices, which has, in, according to some polls, 90 plus percent support, I mean, going back decades, which is completely unique in American politics, there is no other issue that comes close of, of in terms of major issues, uh, 85 routinely high 80s um, public support. If we can't get action on that with Democrats claiming, <laughs> you know, with Democrats uh, in power of all, uh, you know, three branches almost, not, not three branches, but enough uh, certainly to uh, enforce executive actions and, uh, even Donald Trump, it's, it's not just about the Democrats, even Donald Trump rode to power saying the drug companies are getting away with, with murder. I was at a lot of those rallies from 2016. Those were some of his biggest applause lines. They're as pissed as anybody. I mean, the, the democratic nature of illness uh, and, and the cost of these drugs impacts everybody, even wealthy people. Um, you know, I've talked to people who have wings of law departments named after them, and they're pissed about having to spend these outrageous sums for drugs that are keeping them or their, their partners alive. Um, so it's amazing how universal this, this issue is and how universal is the rage. And if we can't get action on this, then I'm not sure how you, and Bernie Sanders is very eloquent on this point. He's like, how do you convince people to take anything seriously? if you've got 90% support constantly and it still doesn't happen. And you've got these drug reform uh, planks in Build Back Better that are just pathetic. They're so weak, they've been negotiated down twice within the party. And of course they haven't been passed. They haven't pulled the, the drug reform section of Build Back Better out and tried to pass it as a standalone bill, even though it's the most popular by far um, and bipartisan part of the whole uh, infrastructure bill. So how much of a threat then are these high pharmaceutical prices to democracy? Or are they not a threat to democracy because there's so much power within the pharmaceutical industry that they can guide this po policy going into the future ad infinitum? The lack of action on this issue, I think, is a you know, to the extent that democracy, uh, you know, has, has a pulse, um, it, it, I think very much it rides on this issue as much as any other. Um, there, has to, there has to be some sense that the government has responded to uh, the, you know, what amounts to the murder uh, and, uh, you know, production of enormous amounts of suffering among the American public. And if the government can't 
you know, manhandle a company that is making a fortune off of a drug that was funded almost entirely by the U.S. government. I mean, there's a petition on the desk of uh, Becerra at HHS right now and on Biden's desk as well to force the federal government. Well, it's a request. It's an ask that the federal government use its power under U.S. law to make generic uh, versions of the prostate cancer drug called Extandi available in the public interest based on the U.S. role in its invention, which was basically a U.S. Army invention. It was funded by U.S. Army funds and the U.S. UCLA in, uh, in their laboratories, but with U.S. Army grants and NIH grants. And it was sold to a Japanese firm, which flipped it to an American partner. And long story short, it's now uh, priced beyond the reach of people around the world, but Americans as well, Americans who, who aren't wealthy. And there's no reason for that because the drug itself does not cost that much to make, which is true for almost all of these, which is why I talk about alchemy in the, in the beginning of the book, because it's basically a version of alchemy to take stuff that is inherently not that valuable and turn it into pure gold, which is what they're doing. I mean, they're, they're just producing wealth out of nothing through this magic of monopoly, which is a political creation. And it's allowed as an act of politics and it can be stopped with politics. Like there's nothing universal and inherent and given about a monopoly on a drug. Like that is a creation of the state and it is allowed to flourish by a dereliction of duty by that state. You write that as Henry IV, Thomas Jefferson and Louis Brandeis understood, if you allow the unnatural multiplication of private wealth, eventually its power will slip all social constraints. You'll wake up one day to find Merlin wearing the crown. But what we are often look at, is it's the, it's the profits, the vast wealth created by the healthcare industry. Is power the bigger issue, the bigger story with the ph pharmaceutical industry than profit? And what is missed when the focus is on the profits and not on the power? Well, I mean, the two are twined, right? I mean, it's those profits that allow them to run this uh, lobbying operation and this media operation that is the biggest in the capital and has been for a long time. And it's even bigger and force multiplied when they team up as they do with the insurance companies and the hospitals. Um, I mean, they're all working together in the AMA. They all have the same basic interest in maintaining the system as it is because they're all doing quite well and they have sort of deep strains of reactionary uh, political, um, you know, that's just where they come from. Uh, they're against government intervention. Doctors don't want uh, government you know, healthcare historically, and the drug companies don't want government uh, negotiation, although they're happy to have the government pay um, their prices. And with those resources, with those combined resources, they basically have a lock on, on the system, although there are signs that, that uh, it may be starting to crack. But I have a piece in New York uh, about a month ago where I, I talk about how they use that money. And basically what they do is they, I mean, there's two drug industry lobbyists for every member of Congress, Congress and they are always in those offices, um, knocking on doors, making phone calls, making sure first-termers stay away from the issue, 
And if they do go near the issue, there are all sorts of uh, sticks waiting for them. Um, and they are very good at deterring representatives from going anywhere near uh, drug reform, drug pricing reform. I mean, you, you don't want patients group ads on the airwaves in your district saying, my son has a terminal disease and because Congresswoman XYZ wants to cut into the drug industry's profits that there will never be a cure and we're all gonna die. And also everyone you know is gonna die because all progress will stop. Um, they've been very effective at doing that and they have a ton of money to get that across. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I don't watch it, but uh, apparently there's a whole lot of uh, Pfizer ads on MSNBC, which is, you know, this is not an issue you, you hear a lot about on those shows. And uh, you know, that's another face of, of their money, the, the amount of advertising and marketing um, from you know, the cable news all the way down to medical journals. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's expressed in ways that are not um, always apparent, but are extremely influential, including medical journals where drug industry advertising keeps editors quiet about the fact that a lot of the journal articles about new drugs do not include data from trials and the companies are not required to provide that data, even as they're having these extremely influential articles published about their supposed um, important new drugs, which in many cases are repurposed older drugs, uh, evergreened drugs and not drugs with, with genuine um, therapeutic novelty value. A dead end of innovation. You write, or uh, we, we are speaking with journalist Alexander Zajcik, author of Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19. You can find out more about Alexander at Zajcik.com. That's Z-A-I-T-C-H-I-K. You write the concept of intellectual uh, property remains profoundly counterintuitive, if not paradoxical. If you possess a milking cow and your neighbor steals that cow, You've lost your cow. Consult any culture, east or west, ancient or modern, and some form of revenge or legal remedy would be prescribed. If, however, you discovered a process for m making cow's milk healthier or safer to drink, and your neighbor initiated the method to make his cow's milk healthier or safer, the balance of opinion would swing against the judgment that a theft or any other punishable crime had occurred. This is because your neighbor's possession of your idea does not reduce your store of that idea. In fact, the opposite is true. Scientific knowledge, especially related to food and medicine, is a public good whose benefits, say maximizing vaccine production at the lowest cost during a pandemic, increase the more broadly the knowledge is diffused. Economists call such goods non-rivalrous. If intellectual property is counterintuitive, Alexander, how did we come to accept intellectual property as something that can exist and be owned? Because that seems like a very well-accepted idea here in the United States that, hey, I came up with this idea. Why should somebody be able to steal my idea and profit from it? Yes, it is a very well-entrenched, and now it seems like the air we breathe, it's always been thus. Uh, but one of the interesting things about history generally is the more you dig into something, the more you see the world before that thing came into being, and the more you realize how, uh, you know, ultimately, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? You know, the ideas that we have are creations 
of moments and contexts that often dissolve, leaving the idea behind, and they're just there as if they had always been there. But with patents, they came about, the idea of intellectual property came about in a very specific contest between royal power and a rising parliament in England. This is where we get the modern patent system, the model that they're based on. And basically the, the crown was abusing its ability to pick winners and losers in the economy. It was saying, you control this trade. It was giving its courtiers, you know, the right to, to control whole areas of the economy. And this was considered a drag by the, the rising mercantilist class and, uh, in, in parliament, there was a pushback. So they came to an agreement. There would be a ban on monopoly because monopoly was just considered a bad thing, a general ban on monopoly. But it was assumed that with a carve out of on invention patents, they could draw uh, brilliant people from abroad and inspire uh, creativity among native uh, scientists tradespeople, inventors, whoever, to basically create new industries and grow the economy. And that the economy very much needed it because there were a lot of social pressures resulting from enclosure and major you know, social transformations taking place at the time. So they said, okay, let's, let's do a little carve out on a general ban on monopoly. Now the carve out, carve out, like you said, was generally considered very counterintuitive and possibly counterproductive. And that was the view of John Locke, Adam Smith, a lot of the big names who in subsequent centuries we associate with the, the creation of capitalism, they were very suspicious of this idea as a spur, the idea that a patent was a spur to um, knowledge creation. They figured, look, if you look at history, knowledge has always been created. The more it's shared, the more knowledge is gonna be created. They were not convinced, but it remained. Now, within the carve out to the ban on monopoly, which was the patent, you have another carve out. And that was everything was gained to be patented except products related to food, nutrition, and medicine, because it was considered somehow beyond the ethical pale to deny that knowledge, to give people even just a 14 year, the old patent term, a 14 year head start to profit because anything that restricted or delayed the diffusion of that knowledge as widely as possible was considered deeply unethical and, uh, you know, in some sense, even against the sort of sacred nature of, of knowledge as it relates to human health, going back to, you know, the ancients. And then it was, that idea was Christianized. And then with the enlightenment, you had this idea of the sort of Republic of science. You had these, this priestly class of, of sort of, um, scientists that secularize this idea of, of knowledge as a gift from God. And you just don't mess with that when it comes to medicine, because back then, remember, there weren't a lot of medicines when, when, when the patent was invented. So the idea that you would restrict something that actually reduced suffering and made surgery a little less painful and extended life, that was the height of villainy. And that, uh, that taboo lasted into the 20th century. So this normal that you reference as just the way it is um, with regard to medicines is extremely recent. And IP is, is you know, a creation of the Elizabethan era, but drug patents are extremely recent. 
And that is what I tried to get across with this book is to sort of remind ourselves how new this is. And it was only in the early 20th century that the debates on whether they should be allowed began. And they really didn't end until the post-war era. And in Europe, drug patents weren't recognized in some cases until the 1990s, like just at the very end of the debates leading to the founding of the WTO, in 1995, some of our European allies were still horrified at the idea. Spain, for example, even Switzerland didn't, which is now considered you know, a drug powerhouse of Europe and always has been, they didn't issue drug patents until the 70s, the late 70s, extremely recent. And that knowledge, I think, makes it easier to imagine a, a radical reform of the current system, which is runaway uh, patent power for the pharmaceutical companies. You write that equally wrong is the industry's claim that curtailing its monopoly grip on public science would constitute an attack on free market principles. There is no free market in pharmaceuticals. The industry is based on a double protection racket of artificial monopolies granted and enforced by the state. This arrangement is frosted with a continuous public research subsidy that underwrites nearly all of the industry's uh, products. So if the pharmaceutical industry was truly a free market, Alexander, without any state involvement whatsoever, what would the U.S. pharmaceutical industry be? What would it look like? Well, you can go back in time and you can see it as just another... um, profitable manufacturing sector, you know? I mean, there are lots of sectors that don't have uh, the ability to charge um, whatever prices it wants because they operate in competitive environments and um, government is regulating them or whatever the case may be, but you can have a profitable industry. And in fact, uh, you can look at generics companies to see what that looks like and the generics companies by the way aren't always you know angels in this story they they were the subject of one of the biggest cartel suits by state ags in the country's history uh, a couple of years ago um but you know they can still make money you know they, the book is filled with examples of them contracting with the state the state doing the heavy lifting as they're still doing and you know hiring the companies as junior partners which is their role in a lot of things um and paying them well to do a job and uh but they're not you know making these outsized profits that are completely unrelated to the cost of production or what they're spending on r d or anything else that is usually um you know found when you when you (laughs) look into the numbers of industry or, or a firm um you know, during the the polio uh, vaccine moment in in the 1950s, the companies were hired uh, to make something and uh, they were regulated and they turned a profit. Penicillin, streptomycin, you know, the early antibiotics market, there was no patents there. And what did you have? You had companies doing well, really well. In fact, that's how you get a lot of these companies. Pfizer became a powerhouse based on its government penicillin contracts in large part. and you had mass diffusion at low cost of important life-saving drugs around the world. That, the mid-century model is a, a pretty good one. 
You also mentioned uh, extensively and write about it quite a deal in your book, uh, trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights or what is known as TRIPS as has been negotiated through the G7 as well as at the WTO. You write the negotiations that resulted in the globalization of U.S.-style medical monopoly were not so much held over a table as conducted on a rack. It was the only way to enforce the concept as peculiar and universally rejected as rent-seeking from medicines. This is the story of how one of history's worst ideas took root against centuries of tradition and came to dominate the world. What do you mean by conducted on a rack? How did the United States or the pharmaceutical industry or you know, the Western pharmaceutical industry torture, if you will, the rest of the world to go along with monopoly medicine that leads to scientific knowledge relating to life-saving medicines no longer being shared but owned as a source of profit rather than provided as a public health service. How, how was that conducted on Iraq? Well, there are a lot of tools um, that were used then and are used now uh, by the Western powers to dictate their will um, on conference, across conference tables with, with poor countries. But at the time of those um, negotiations, the Uruguay round, the big one was the trade preferences, which many poor countries had just won. They had recently gained access to Western markets for their agricultural and textile goods for those industries, which are important for these countries. And they were starting to stand up. And suddenly they were being told, you must now respect uh, this um, agenda that's being put forward uh, for the Uruguay round that will require you to respect Western drug patents. And they were almost to a one universally furious about this, but opposing trips, opposing the forced inclusion of intellectual property into trade talks, which had never been done before. Trade was considered a matter of goods, you know, <laughs> things you can touch. Um, the insertion of IP was, was a radical break uh, from the past. You couldn't, Levi's couldn't even get, you know, it, brand protection at it, it, the previous trade round before Uruguay, it, the Tokyo round. So this was a huge leap and, and the Global South was, was uniformly against it. But they were told by Washington, which again, remember in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, which is what we're talking about here, the US was at the height of its so-called unipolar power, the unipolar moment. The Soviet Union was on its back or dissolving and Washington had an enormous amount of unchecked uh, sway in these conversations. And the governments broke one by one and India and Brazil were sort of the last two big ones standing. And ultimately they both made uh, huge concessions which essentially uh, paved the way for trips. Uh, you write that the uh, October 2020 waiver motion covering intellectual property rights related to the COVID-19 vaccine, quote, had the virtue of simplicity. It covered all forms of intellectual uh, data, uh, patents, trade secrets, copyright data, until citing the waiver itself, quote, widespread vaccination is in place globally and the majority of the world's population has developed immunity. How far would that have gone toward protecting the public, not only from the uh, you know pandemic as or the virus as it relates from October 2020 on, 
but also the new variants that we're even seeing to this day. How far would that had, had that waiver of intellectual property rights have gone toward protecting the public right now from COVID-19? If it had been adopted when it was first proposed um, by South Africa and India, that would have been uh, very useful. But remember, the waiver was a backup plan. The original plan for uh, distributing COVID vaccine technologies and also treatments was CTAP, the COVID technology access pool, which was unveiled in April of um, 2020. Uh, and that was completely rejected by all of the drug companies and their sponsored governments. And it was only then that the Global South said, okay, what's, what's plan B? And they came up with the waiver. Had it been um, adopted at the time, you know, that would have been useful and good, but it was bogged down despite uh, Biden's support when he came into office and it's still caught up in, you know, bureaucratic wrangling and the text is, is weak and it doesn't cover this. And, uh, you know, it's a bit of a murky process. Um, there are people who spend their entire lives trying to decode what's going on in, in, in the trips chamber. Um, but ultimately I don't think anyone has, has too much faith in that anymore. And now it's about one, uh, building on the recent support of the CTAP by the Biden administration and two, just ignoring the um, the benevolence of the drug companies and the, their sponsor allied governments and building up uh, capacity in the South so that they are not dependent on philanthropy and the goodwill of wealthier countries and the drug companies. And that's what they're doing with the South African mRNA Center. That's what's happening with the South Korea Vaccine Research Center that I just mentioned, both being sponsored by the WHO. And this was the kind of thing they did in the early years of the organization in, in the 50s and 60s. They were actively involved in building up the global South to have self-sufficiency in a native technological base so that they could have their own pharmaceutical sectors and, and research centers. So that, you know, the... <laughs> the guys at uh, Pfizer and Moderna's corner offices are not in charge of the technology uh, that can help or, or retard the global response to a, a pandemic. And it's, that's what they're thinking is the future. They're like, what are we gonna do for the next one? Because all of this stuff we've been talking about, it's important to remember, it's, it's not just contemporary sort of history, it's also a stress test. And we should be also thinking about the future, which is, you know, we got in a way, it's strange to say this, but we did get lucky with um, COVID-19. No one was expecting it to be a coronavirus. Everyone thought it was going to be an avian flu, which in every case um, that we've seen so far, we've had some close calls, had much higher mortality rates and attacked much healthier cohorts, younger, healthier cohorts of the population. So, you know, when that happens, and you know, unfortunately, it's, a, it's probably a when, not an if, what institutions uh, are gonna be in place and built up and what lessons have we learned from this experience? Um, and, and the WHO and the Global South have uh, certainly started to answer that question in ways that are promising. And you also mentioned this concept of invulnerable exclusivity. And just to follow up on what you were just saying, so for the pharmaceutical industry, what is the end game? They are obviously fine with the way things are, and they're going to fight to the death to protect it, um, literally fight to the death. 
I mean, one of the things that I always try to <laughs> remind people when they say, well, the, the industry really, you know, where would we, where would we be without them? They're, they're so important. Um, you know, look what they did. They, they produced these, these vaccines. They only participated in Operation Warp Speed when they were able to crush democratic attempts to apply very light social obligations to that tranche, that, those billions. Um, of, of first wave warp speed funds. Um, the pharma spokesperson in DC, Stephen Ubel, said very directly to the cameras at the time, said, look, if you try to attach any uh, qualifications to our control of the IP resulting from this research, we will take our ball and go home and you can all die. And that's, you know, that's where this industry that's constantly, you know, striding about the world, talking about being Atlas, you know, that's where they really come down when, when you look at the, the chips. Um, and that was their position during HIV AIDS too. They did not get involved in that until the government said, look, we'll pay for everything and you can keep all the IP. They thought it was, you know, too risky, too expensive, had too much stigma. Not one of these, you know, world-saving drug companies that we're all supposed to worship went near HIV until the NIH and the National Cancer Institute said, look, we have a promising therapy and what turned out to be ACT and we'll pay for everything. And then you can take the ball and you can charge whatever prices you want. And that was 1986, seven, but they were happy to let the world burn. And that's still their position pretty much. So considering the way that they reacted to the AIDS vaccine, considering the way that the pharmaceutical industry, its response to the current uh, pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, just based on that history, what would you expect will happen with the next pandemic when the next virus rolls around? Well, if you have a self-respecting government to call their bluff, um, you know, we'll, we'll see, but they they'll probably hold their ground as much as possible. But in, you know, the final analysis, there is a history of them assuming a, a junior role in a partnership. And you can also begin the process of making them less necessary. Um, you know, there used to be things called public drug sectors across the West, uh, and they still have them in Sweden, for example, Cuba. Um, the government, the U.S. government can build up uh, a capacity for not just basic research and sort of, um, you know, uh, midway uh, development, but full cycle drug development and then production facilities. They've started to move in that direction. Uh, after 2001, there were some halting efforts in the Bush and Obama administrations to, to build um, government vaccine production facilities and, and research hubs. And they were sort of, you know, victims of their public private uh, model, which didn't really work. It turns out the the um, the private collaborators weren't weren't terribly interested in uh, the same goals, so we could learn from that as well and just start thinking in terms of a full cycle public drug sector, and you know using things like the Defense Authorization Act when necessary to turn existing facilities to the production of uh, of needed drugs and, and medicines free of of IP restrictions. So I mean, it's not like we don't have resources. It's just how are we going to use them. And, um, and to what ends. So just a couple more questions for you, Alexander. Uh, when it came to the idea of intellectual property rights, so a big way that that was sold to the American public in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s, was this idea 
of pirating, of copyright uh, pirating, and how that was, you know, uh, Bill Clinton ran with that. Uh, You write, by the time Bill Clinton signed the Economic Espionage Act that was supposed to protect from so-called pirating, this betrayal was wasn't just a U.S. problem. Like so much else in the mid-1990s, the trade secret regime was about to go global. Why do you see this as a betrayal? And who did President Bill Clinton betray in signing the Economic Espionage Act into law? Yeah, so he was extending a process that started uh, under Reagan, whereby the patent bargain, the social contract that underlay the patent system, uh, was basically completely trashed. And that agreement was this, you get the patent, you get the limited exclusivity in exchange for all of the information needed to make the product put into the public domain so that we have it as like a promissory note. We, we, we're keeping this uh, so that when the term limit is up on your monopoly, we can just put it into the world and there will be a competitive market. But what happened is trade secret law and other tweaks to the patent system resulted in enormous amounts of information crucial to the production of the patented product being shielded from uh, public exposure indefinitely. So for example, in the case of COVID-19 vaccines, you had Moderna making a big show of saying, we're going to put our patents in the public domain. Well, that's great. But the reason they were able to say that is because they knew and everyone else knew that you could not make their vaccine based on the patents. They were still squatting their trade secrets, which contained an enormous amount of a subcategory called know-how, which was not in the patent. And without that, uh, you know, all the interlocking patents beneath the patent and how they fit together, uh, you know, it was useless. And that wasn't supposed to be how the patent system was supposed to work. It was supposed to be, you'd put it out there and the design, you know, it was a different world when it was just a design for like, you know, you know, processing hemp. It was a machine. It was like, okay, this is how the machine works. Anyone could build it. But now with chemicals, high-tech pharmaceuticals, the stuff is so complicated that the real, uh, the real prize in stuff that you you most need is in is in the trade secrets. And the law now says companies can keep that in-house as long as they want. Anything with value uh, can be protected as a trade secret. And it basically makes a mockery of, of the whole idea of, um, of, of the trade-off in the original patent schema. But then, as you point out in your book, we often look at trade secrets, intellectual property rights, and patents. And even other things like data rights, we all view these as one thing. What do we miss in our understanding of what is happening with the World Trade Organization? What's happening with intellectual property rights when we view all of these things as because it seems like we're not getting a good enough explanation, either from our public officials or from the media? What happens when we don't understand the basic definitions of these terms? Yeah. So the big thing is in terms of the public education, you'd just be making people realize that the patent is not a synonym for IP. It is a subset and arguably the least important subset of IP with pharmaceuticals. So, you know, arming people with that knowledge, I think is, is a big part of having an informed um, public that can do battle um, on these issues. 
One last question for you, Alexander. We've been speaking with journalist Alexander Zajcik, author of the new book, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19. You can find out more about Alexander at Zajcik.com. That's Z-A-I-T-C-H-I-K. Also go to our website and search on his name to find our interview with him uh, from last year, uh, 2021, which was selected by our listeners as one of their favorites of last year. There was an interview we did about his writing at New Republic, how Bill Gates impeded global access to COVID vaccines. As I was, one last question for you, Alexander, and as always with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience <laughs> is going to hate your response. You mentioned, as I was saying, data rights. You quote, KM Gopu Kumar, the legal advisor to the Third World Network, saying, if the originator company has trial data exclusivity, you will have to repeat everything and reinvent the wheel. Even if you copy the original invention perfectly and there is no patent on the other product, the claim on protected data turns the regulatory agencies into enforcers of trade secrets. This would seem like when it's imposed upon other nations and their pharmaceutical industries, uh, like a form of colonialism. Is this a form of colonialism, using an economic and legal mechanisms to control other nations? Absolutely. So Easy one. All right, so that's an easy answer. But so what can be done if the law, as it is stated right now within the World Trade Organization, within TRIPS, what can be done when the law says that that colonialism is legal and just? Well, it's a mix of sort of international level politics and also domestic level. I mean, the the government itself can choose to require, um, they can determine what level of data is necessary to approve uh, a drug. So they could lower that standard or change the standard so that even without, um, they, there's other ways to prove uh, biosimilarity or effectiveness in a way that could allow the, um, the, the legalization of the drug in that country. And that's often, often done. I mean, this gets super, super weedy. Um, but yeah, the data question is, is a big one. And that's another piece of the puzzle that I think people aren't aware of is, is the way the, the companies control the trial results and how important those results are in different countries and different contexts. But they also, how to put this? Um, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. But it's I'll, last point. There's an excellent book out now uh, called Sickening uh, by a John Abramson. And he talks about how the trial data is not given even to journal editors for major papers that are used as the basis for decisions by thousands of doctors across the country and the world. Um, So yeah, getting them to uh, be more transparent with trial data, both for the purpose of safety and uh, also in terms of allowing countries to um, measure their uh, versions of drugs against uh, the original, so to speak, would would be huge advances. Um, so yeah, we, we got to get the, the trial data uh, rules adjusted across the board. Again, that book is Sickening by John Abramson. We should put that on our list of potential guests to have on the show. Alexander, it's really great to have you back on. And while I was reading your book, all I could think of was, you know, this concept that we have that capitalism motivates innovation. 
when it seems like from your writing and from past guests we've had on the show for the past 26 years, that isn't always the ca- the case. It seems that capitalism seems to uh, motivate monopolistic behavior more than it does innovation. Thank you so much for being back on our show, and we really look forward to having you back on again. And I have your email address, so you're screwed. <laughs> Anytime. Thanks, All right. Jeff. Take care, Alexander. Yeah. This Bye-bye. is not democracy now or ever. This is hell. If what you just heard from Alexander Zajic on the pharmaceutical industry and the way it prioritizes profits over people, even during a pandemic, that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or, you know, made you feel like you actually learned something or to just realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on, I don't know, Thursday, Friday. Sebastian, do you know? Are we doing Patreon on Thursday or Friday? Uh, I think we're doing Patreon on Friday. All right. So that'll be on Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week. Podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. So on last week's Patreon podcast, our Friday the 13th podcast, we went back up north to investigate the scary stories of a small, of a certain drug that, which is uh, reportedly the scourge of small-town rural America. But what we found via the pages of a small-town weekly newspaper in northern Michigan, the Houghton Lake Resorter, is a lot more complicated and complex than what we might expect. In fact, it turns out our stereotypes and generalizations about rural folk are, as always, inaccurate. We also played a 20-year-old interview with historian Bruce Cummings when Bruce was on the show to mark the 42nd anniversary of the May, or sorry, 22nd anniversary of the May 1980 Gwangju uprising in South Korea of armed civilians challenging the U.S.-supported authoritarian military government. So we figured 22 years later we'd play it to commemorate the 46th, 42nd anniversary of the May 1980 Guangzhou uprising. Bruce is fascinating during that conversation, and he will make you think of the U.S.-Korean relations uh, dating all the way back to the Korean War in a way you have never considered it in the past. But there was something else I noticed while listening last week. And that is evil. Bruce mentions how labeling something as evil, in the case, in this case, North Korea, it ends any discussion on the topic. Any and all historical context is suddenly ignored and erased. Motivations become invisible. Everything is boiled down to a simple label, label, evil, meaning there is no reason to examine or investigate the situation any further because, well, The bad guys are evil, and that's all you need to know. Saying anything else about the matter is merely a concession to evil, if not full-throated support for evil, which is something we need to consider in light of the evil brand being placed on so many people over the past few months and now within the last few days. Evil ends a conversation just as we should be having that conversation to understand what has happened far better than dismissing it as something as, as something that is nothing more than simplistically evil. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from Alan. Tell us how our listeners are responding so far. 
this week's question from hell is what are you replacing white people with? What are you replacing white people with? This is a fantastic question from hell. I just hats off to you whoever wrote this. Um, yeah, that was, um, if you want to blame anybody, that was my idea. <laughs> All right, sweet. Um, Braden S. says, some nice flowers. Aw. Walter B. says, a random batch of cocky chinos from The Gap. <laughs> Luke B. says, I'm replacing myself with an even gayer, louder, Liberace-loving version of myself. <laughs> I know Luke B., and I don't know if that's possible. Happy birthday to Liberace, by the way, he says. <laughs> oh. Chris L. says, as a Jew, I have to keep this a secret, but you're all in for a hell of a surprise. <laughs> uh, Badger N. says, Labradors. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Vanilla or, or black labs? Yeah, I don't, oh, very labs. good point. Chocolate labs would be yeah. the more appropriate answer, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> Steve C. says, Plankton. <laughs> Adam A. says, I could really go for some curry fries, though. Anywho... Because whiteness is a stupid construct, I'm simply replacing white people. Period. Full stop. Doesn't matter with what. Goodbye, whiteness. Hello, anything else? And let me get some curry curry fries with that. Yeah, I, I can get behind that. Uh, you know, I've never had curry fries. Have you? Really? They're they're kind of a staple food. I mean, depends on what you understand of as curry fries in in Germany. Like currywurst is like a very standard thing that you can right. basically get at every street corner. Is like uh, and and fries come with that and you can have fries with curry ketchup curry ketchup is amazing if you've never had curry ketchup oh my god i gotta have that yeah because I, um, uh, I i love poutine you mm, know so i yeah. know that it's going to be a, a different or better version than that yeah. all right keep going uh okay a few more benjamin c says empty jars of mayonnaise <laughs> and finally dan k says three ducks in the trench coat <laughs> Again, our question from hell for you this week is, what are you replacing white people with? What are you replacing white people with? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when Jeff Dorchin will be delivering the moment of truth. Or not this week. He's not doing a moment of truth this week, is he? Uh, totally honestly, I, I don't know. I yes, mean, he's going to uh, be leaving. So, uh, yeah, no uh, moment of truth this week. So the end of uh, the show this week, make sure you have your answer into this I week's mean, question from hell. I, I, I can probably just whip up another version of Seb's Soapbox. No, there you go. I heard Seb's soap, Soapbox last week. That was uh, very tongue-twisting and very good at the same time. So it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. I, I, I think I hear Jeff yelling outside. Uh, uh, ignore him. This week Wait, in Rotten History. Give me, give me one second. All right. I'll, I'll check it out. All right. On May 16th, 1874, 148 years ago today, Monday, a nine-year-old dam on the Will, Mill River in Massachusetts suffered a cas- catastrophic failure. What is he yelling about? Good Lord. Ah, released a flood that destroyed four villages and killed 139 people. What the hell was Jeff yelling about? What the hell was Jeff yelling about? Uh, Jeff is yelling about that he is giving a moment of truth, in- indeed. Oh, okay. So just have your answer to this week's question, Mel, by the end of this week's moment of truth. Again, on May 16th, 1874, 148 years ago today, Monday, a nine-year-old dam on the Mill River in Massachusetts suffered a catastrophic failure, releasing a flood that destroyed four villages and killed 139 people. The dam, intended to provide water power for a mill, had been designed by a man who had no formal training in the profession, and had been the dam had been constructed poorly in haste and on the cheap. 
Who knew that the desire to provide power during the industrialization of capitalism would lead to deadly disaster for innocent people who had no hand in any of the decision-making leading to their demise? Oh, yeah. Everybody, at least in retrospect. From its first day of operation, the mill had experienced leaks and other trouble. But while the deadly negligence of the dam operators quickly became well-known to the public, no one was ever prosecuted. And that is exactly how a lot of these entries in rotten history end. No one was ever prosecuted. Greed-fueled actions by those who had no idea what they were actually doing, but proclaiming they did and not considering the consequences or caring about the innocent lives they may affect, all ending in absolutely nobody being held responsible or accountable for their deadly negligence. Hey, what can I say? It's what the market demands. Also in Rotten History on May 18th, 1896, 126 years ago this Wednesday, an estimated half million people gathered in the early morning on Kodinka Field, just northwest of Moscow, for a festival being held to celebrate Russia's emperor and empress, Nicholas and Alexandra, both of whom had, who had been form, formally uh, crowned four days earlier. A reign of power that would not end well for either of them. Among other things, the authorities had set up an array of free food. Sounds good. And beer. Great. Beer stands for the public. Free beer. And as the crowd poured in, word spread that each person would receive a sausage. Fantastic. A hunk of bread. Okay. A big pretzel. Fantastic again. And some beer in a special commemorative cup. A cup that I would like to have. And this whole thing sounds a lot like Germany's Oktoberfest. No insult to the Russian culture. Soon there came a rumor that each cup would also contain a valuable coin. Okay, now it sounds nothing like any Oktoberfest I've ever attended. Uh, this rumor of a gold coin got the crowd excited, especially when people began to hear that there might not be enough food, beer, or coins for everybody. Things got out of hand fast, and by noon the festivities had turned violent, with shoving and fistfights everywhere, something I have oddly never seen at any German or Oktoberfest here in Chicago. I guess I just don't stick around long enough. Despite the presence of almost 2 thousand police, or maybe because of them, people were trampled to death as they tried to escape the scene. Almost 1,300 people were killed, with many thousands more injured. 1,300 people killed! But the cops and organizers did manage to clear away the dead so efficiently that the festivities were able to continue. Chalk up one for efficiency. By mid-afternoon, Nicholas and Alexandra made their triumphant appearance on the palace balcony, with no inkling that 22 years later they would both be imprisoned, exiled, and finally executed in the wake of Russia's Bolshevik Revolution. Although I don't know what is more of a harbinger of things to come for your time on the throne than 1,300 people being killed at a party celebrating your coronation. Now that's rotten history, and this is... Hell, Sebastian, do we have any idea of what's happening on the rest of this week's shows? I know that there will be hand-picked interviews by our producers. Anything uh, else? Yes, so for the rest of the week, we're going uh, back into limbo. Um, on <laughs> Tuesday, Dan Hill will play um, Kianga Yamata Taylor yes. talking about racism in the real estate industry. I have not heard back from the rest of my co-hosts, and... I have not picked Pick my own yourself. interview that yet. I will 
I, I think I will do something on on whiteness, uh, yeah. just because that is um, such a, a, a relevant topic all the time. And uh, yeah, there's like there's a lot of in literature to choose from, and I can comment on it. And uh, yeah, sweet. Uh, I will be back next Monday when our guest will be Adrian Shirk, author of Heaven Is a Place on Earth, searching for an America American Utopia which is described by the publisher as an exploration of American ideas of utopia through the lens of one millennial's quest to live a more communal life under late-stage capitalism. A recent New Republic review of Adrian's book was entitled, We Need to Talk About Rural Gentrification. So that's exactly what we'll be talking about when I return next Monday, May 23rd. And hopefully, if all goes well, I will be hosting all of next week's shows We'll see what happens with this whole issue that I'm having now with losing weight at a rapid pace and then gaining weight at a rapid pace. So I mentioned earlier how a listener dropped by Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from us where we're broadcasting from right now, and they left a book, and a handwritten letter was inside. The book is the University of Tulsa Law Review, and the listener Calvin, who I believe has written to us via email in the past several times, is also the co-author of an article featured in the University of Tulsa Law Review. So the letter reads, Chuck, I was very sorry to recently learn of your incredibly crappy situation. He doesn't use the word crappy, but we're broadcast over the air at WNUR. I'm sending you all the best vibes and hope they will aid in a speedy recovery. I've been perpetually behind on just about everything for the last six months or so, including the show though I'm finally into the 2022 episodes now. But This Is Hell has kept me grounded in the wider reality beyond me. It's continued to provide me with perspectives missing from my daily routine. For the last four years, I've been juggling full-time work with multiple jobs and going to law school part-time. In fact, I began the law program shortly after my most recent, prior to this visit to Chicago, uh, back in the summer of 2018, which unfortunately remains my only visit to office hours. And I believe I met Kelvin at those office hours. But everything since before the pandemic is just kind of a really weird, muddy mess in my brain right now. In the years since, Kelvin writes, I have had less and less time to read, and so I have relied heavily upon your show for the people-focused perspectives lacking from my law school curriculum and the media people around me, media slash people around me. So a couple of years ago, a professor approached me about potentially co-authoring an article to which I somewhat reluctantly agreed on the condition that it be related to something I'd already knew a bit about to that I could uh, hopefully avoid adding too much more to my plate. Of course, I added too much to my plate Anyways, however, one way or another, I managed to write something and our article was eventually published as you have it here in the University of Tulsa Law Review. It was an incredibly difficult and stressful experience for me for a variety of reasons, not least because I tend to think that most things I have to say or said have already been said better by other smarter people. Regardless, I found a cornerstone of inspiration and motivation in the most likely of places. This is hell. I cannot stress this enough. I could not have written this article without This Is Hell. Besides the inspiration, my footnotes are an absolute smorgasbord of This Is Hell guests, and I don't know how I ever would have found or remembered their work if it weren't for the excellent, informative, and mind-blowing, perhaps 
Mind Enlargening is more accurate. Interviews you and the team present week after week. And he's absolutely right. If you go to the footnotes of his article, it is guest after guest after guest of This Is Hell. Calvin continues, as an incredibly smart token of appreciation, small token, (laughs) as an incredibly small token of appreciation, here's a copy of the journal with my article in it. I hope the material it contains can, at the very least, help you get a good night's sleep as you recover. While I hope for your sake that recovery is quick and easy, feel free to take your time returning to the show so I can get caught back up on the show. And also because taking your time is probably the best way to ensure that you get back to full health in as painless a way as humanly possible. Give my best to the rest of the This Is Health family, and please do get well soon. With love and solidarity, Calvin. Calvin, I really hope that you can join us again for office hours in the near future. Or, as I will be mentioning a little bit on September 17th for the This Is Hell anniversary party at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Again, that's Saturday, September 17th. So the article Calvin co-wrote with Andre Douglas Pond Cummings is entitled Racial Capitalism and Race Massacres, Tulsa's Black Wall Street and Elaine's Sharecroppers. With the 101st anniversary of the massacre coming up in a couple of weeks on June 1st, we will be sending a request to have Calvin and Andre on the show Tuesday, June 1st, immediately following Memorial Day weekend. Thanks, Calvin. What you wrote to us and what Vess told us in email about listening to the show while traveling back and forth to visit her ailing friend. I mean, without, I, 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 without those, I mean, with those, reading all that stuff that people were sending to me, I could not wait to get back to doing the show. I truly appreciate everyone who wrote with their get well wishes, telling me not to rush back and to take the time to heal. And let's hope I did. I don't know if I did, but let's hope I did. Finally, to get you all caught up on what's happening here on This Is Hell. This Is Hell continues throughout the week. Producers will be hosting for the rest of this week. They will be featuring hand-picked interviews from our 26-year archive of conversations here on This Is Hell. Then next week will be my first full week of live shows in over two months. That's happening on Monday, May 23rd. Then on Saturday, July 23rd, Carrie's Lounge is celebrating their 50th anniversary of being in operation. And what was the annual art show that is, until the pandemic, This Is Art, that was featured during our anniversary parties, uh, an art show sponsored by This Is Hell. Well, it's having its opening during the 50th anniversary party for Carrie's Lounge on Saturday, July 23rd, because we'd already booked some artists for that date before I took ill. And then, finally again, on Saturday, September 17th, the final Saturday of summer, during summer's final weekend, it's the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and the closing of This Is Art. There will be food, music, a raffle, with doors opening at 3 in the afternoon. So if you have art or music you would like to suggest or something hellish you think would be great to give out as a prize during the raffle, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And I want to thank one of our listeners real quick, Jordan who sent us a book that we'll be giving out, not just as part of the raffle, but 
think we got around 50 copies of this book, and so we'll be giving this book away to a lot of people. The name of the book is E is for Erotica, and as we get closer and closer to our party date, I will be, well, reading what each one of the letters stand for, and why not just start off with A really quickly, or should I just hold off on this? I think I'm going to hold off on this until we get closer. All right. A is for autoerotic asphyxiation, okay? Just so you know. Thanks to our guest, Alexander Zajic, author of Owning the Sun, a People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19. Remember, Alexander was on our show back in April of last year to discuss his New Republic article, How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID Vaccines. And that conversation was selected by you, our listeners, as one of your favorites of 2021. So you can hear that interview right now by going to this is hell.com and searching on Alexander's last name, Zychik. You can find out more about Alexander at Zychik.com. That's Z A I T C H I K.com. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for producing today's show. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. I really miss doing this and I really enjoyed today's show, and that's why we went far over. My apologies to Sebastian, who will be the person editing this week's show for WNUR. Again, thanks to everybody for listening. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is go. on my butt. Ah, I miss you, Wesley. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.